This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! One thing I try to do with this podcast is to find people who are taking a truly unique approach to analyzing the markets. Those taking the financial road less traveled, as I like to call it. Well, Michael Oliver is surely one of those. There's traditional technical analysis, the study of charts, which has been around for as long as markets. And then there's Michael's momentum structural analysis, which is an entirely original way of studying price patterns and trends. It was almost exactly two years ago I first got the chance to interview Michael about his methods. In this conversation, Michael goes into even more depth about his analytical techniques and what they're saying about the markets today. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Michael Oliver. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Michael Oliver, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Jesse. You know, it's it's uh, we did this a couple of years ago. It's hard to believe it's been two years since we did it, but I'm really glad to be sitting here with you in person. It was very kind of you to welcome me into your home office here, uh, and I can actually see behind the curtain how, how the MSA <laughs> reports are made firsthand. It's pretty cool. But I, the first thing I got to ask you is, uh, what brought you here to Colorado from North Carolina? Oh, we used to live here uh, back about. 10, 15 years ago, liked it a lot and moved back to North Carolina. But uh, things are changing in the world. And, and, you know, a lot of people are perceiving this because you can see it with the house building from city dwellers in the very iffy uh, urban areas are moving rapidly to the countryside. You know, obviously with a a sense of apprehension uh, as a motivation. Uh, That's not so much what drove us here. We we like Colorado, especially northern Colorado. It's really a distinct, uh, open Got everything you need, maybe only one of it. <laughs> but uh, unlike Denver, which has three things of everything you need, but it's uh, it's not too dense, but it's dense enough. Great weather. Uh, it's the flatlands, uh, looking at the Rockies, so we're not up in the Rockies. Uh, it's a great place to be, and uh, so we love the weather and the uh, general ambiance of the place. And uh, also, it's interesting, you know, the political trends are shifting around the country we can smell it sort of you know in the news it's at the edge right now but i think it's going to get more obvious as political di- and economic dynamics take hold in the next year or so but talk of secession for example is there's a couple counties up in oregon your state that are talking about it and uh, it's become a, a term that was only used in high school you know right. <laughs> history classes uh in fact there's a county right next to us that's uh, pondering seceding and, and joining Wyoming, a no-tax state. and Who knows? These things might actually happen. Uh, but it, it's an interesting place to be, and all the attributes are, are positive. Well, just climate-wise, it does remind me of Bend, you know, because Bend is kind of central Oregon, kind of in the on the eastern side of the Cascade Mountains in the rain shadow, so it has a nice kind of pleasant uh, climate year-round. I always think of Bend as kind of a small, small Denver, but uh, you're nice, you know, an hour or so north of Denver, kind of set away from the big city, so you're kind of far enough away. But as I mentioned earlier, we it was, I think, almost exactly two years ago that uh, we recorded our first conversation, and I got to recommend people go back and listen to that one if you really want a detailed description of uh, Michael's methods. Um, but just as a bit of a refresher for, for people who have maybe listened to that conversation, but it was two years ago. Um, 
you discovered the value of isolating and studying momentum quite a while back. I think it's almost 30 years that you've been publishing um, MSA. Uh, how do you do? How do you do this? What, what does the process look like of isolating momentum, and why do you believe it's so valuable? Well, uh, a major asset manager, Ray Dalio, several months ago, uh, put out a statement to the effect that people people should be less concerned about the price of their stock value of their stock than the value of their money because he recognized at that point that the value of our money is changing very dramatically. In other words, the number of money units chasing assets is increasing. So uh, that's the main reason we deferred to momentum decades ago is that the money unit, in this case a dollar, for example, uh, that we measure assets with is, is a rubber yardstick. And imagine running your life with yardsticks that are all rubber and elastic and not objective. You know, if you had a yardstick and built a home and your yardstick during the six-month building process, let's say, expanded two, three inches, but it still said 36 inches. Can you imagine the inherent problems you have with that structure? Okay. Uh, and money supply in the U.S. has doubled, almost doubled, not quite doubled, every decade since 1959. Uh, regardless of uh, policy, this, that, or the other. Now it's gone ballistic off the page. So the value of your yardstick has become more important than the asset you're measuring. And so it's distorted by the money unit pricing on the left side of the price chart. Uh, you know, if the stock was 30 bucks and it's now 40 but it's been five years, you're not making any money in real terms, Okay. So how do you get rid of that? Well, you can't totally divorce yourself from that money unit, but you can take a step away. And by taking a step away, what we do is we inject the relationship between the current price and a mean, a long-term average or intermediate-term average, let's say. So you're measuring not just versus how many dollars does it take to buy an ounce of gold or a stock, but where is that price in its relationship to the mean that the stock itself has established as a yardstick. And it's a changing yardstick, a dynamic. Momentum is changing. So if you look at a price chart and you see like a 200-day average underneath, you'll see the average changes every day. So when you measure against that average, it's not just a reflection of the price going up or down, but it's distance from above or below that particular mean. Okay, so what we do then is we plot price in its relationship to certain means or averages. We do everything from 36-month or three-year average, which is a long-term trend assessment, three-quarter average, which is sort of similar to 200-day in duration, all the way down to three-day averages. So we analyze price in its relationship to various averages, and we get a somewhat different picture than what you see on a price chart. Usually, almost all the time, before a trend ever changes on a price chart, it will have already changed on the momentum chart. And what we look for is the same thing price guys look for. What do they look for? Structure. You know, they draw an uptrend line under, let's say, three consecutively higher lows. Or they see a floor that the market keeps coming down to a certain price level repeatedly. And if obviously, if it breaks through that, it's, it's negative. Well, what we look for are the same structures, but on the momentum chart, not the price chart. And it gives us a semi-distance view of that particular asset. Yeah, you know, it, there was a great quote, I think, that was, you know, very telling about 
you know, the value of your process. In one of your recent reports, I think you wrote, price isn't screaming anything so potent, but momentum is. And that's the noise MSA cares about most. And I think the point of that, you know, little segment there was that momentum is many times a leading indicator of price. Would you say that's fair? Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not just the, you know, there's a lot of momentum indicators you got free on your quote screen, you know, mm -hmm. IMACD, RSI, and so forth. Uh, they're fine. They have their use, but they're, um, they're basically what we call wet noodle indicators, meaning they, they look like wet noodles. They loop up, they loop down, and so forth. We look for greater clarity and structure, sharp lows and highs that define, let's say, a flat structure or a multiple point uptrend line that's been hit and hit and hit and defined by the momentum action. Whereas the wet noodle indicators, they can loop over a bit and it may not be breakage. It's just a looping over and it could flip back up again. We look for things that once they're broken, if you were looking at the momentum chart, you would agree with us. You'd say, uh oh, that's broken. There's something to break, not just to go down, but to actually break through when you go down. Yeah. We, we call structure. Yeah. Right. And it, it reminds me of one of my favorite um, Paul Tudor Jones quotes. I, I, I don't know where I got this from, but um, he said, when you get a range expansion, the market is sending you a very loud, clear signal that the market is getting ready to move in the direction of that expansion. And momentum seems to give you these range expansion signals in a cleaner format than price alone. Um, is that is that accurate? Yeah, I we obviously that's what we base our, our work on is uh, the tendency that momentum will have something clear to break. Now, if the momentum turns down, let's say, but it's not breaking anything, it's just inhaling and exhaling. That may not mean too much. That may just be a breather in the given market. But if the downturn in momentum is actually breaking a structure, an uptrend structure. It's clearly established that, you know, you could see by just glancing at the momentum chart, uptrend or a flat floor. That's when we pay most attention to a downturn in momentum or an upturn, reverse the, the structure. Uh, so it's not just the ups or downs, it's the structural breakage. And we, we have sort of a, a phrase that we use is, uh, you can't change a trend unless there's something to break. And usually that first something to break is visible on momentum. And if you've got the something to break, like a, like we use the metaphor, a bridge on the River Kwai, you can't blow the bridge up until they build it, right? Right. You know, and then, then they blew it up. So uh, that's what we look for, are clear structures. Well, and those structures to me, in, in studying your work, you've, you've been generous enough to share it with me for the past few years since we first met, um, is that these structures do represent you know, uh, uptrends or downtrends on, on certain timeframes, you know, depending on if, whether you, like you mentioned, you're looking at that three quarter average, you know, a structure, you know, built in that three quarter average is going to represent a pretty significant uh, uptrend and, and momentum when that, when that structure breaks, it's telling you that uptrend is potentially reversing. And so, you know, that, mm -hmm. that seems to me that, you know, it's been very valuable to kind of watch you, go through this process kind of in real time and studying how these structures are created and how they evolve over time. Um, for me, selfishly, just purely as kind of a, a you know, dyed-in-the-wool value investor, going back to my early days, studying momentum has been very, um, I guess, valuable for me in helping to avoid, um, you know, so-called value traps or even on the short side, avoiding stocks that are maybe on the brink of kind of a parabolic blow-off uh, for me, if all momentum ever did was to help uh, me understand, um, you know, or be able to avoid buying up, buying into opportunities too early, um, that alone would add tremendous value to my process. 
so, so you know, momentum I've found is, is one of those things that, you know, for people who are ignoring it, they're, they're missing uh, a major signal uh, in, in their process. Um, obviously that's something that, that, that you, you know, see and, and began to appreciate a long time ago, but uh, um, how, I guess, how do you think momentum can, can help most investors just kind of, you know, typical long-term investors? Well, when we, for example, see a structure setting up on a market, let's say it's an uptrend structure or a flat floor, we could see it on momentum, you don't see it on price. We warn our subscribers by pointing it out to them that there is a structure now built we have to watch. So we don't just wait till the structure breaks and then suddenly send out a, an alert saying, get short. You know, We give them time usually. Momentum will give you time to mentally digest what might be about to occur so you can apply your own methods, perhaps fundamentals even, to, well, why, why would this market be topping? You know, even before it's topped. Mm-hmm. Momentum says it's making a top. Price looks great. What's momentum telling us? And you could introspect with your own methodologies and overlay them on our timing. Uh, and so in that regard, I think we assist a lot of financial subscribers of ours who are in the money management business um, in thinking through their own process and, and giving them a clue occasionally, uh, a warning. Yeah, and it, it reminds me of another Paul Tudor Jones quote. I'm gonna I'm gonna bungle it, but you know he said there's uh you know the there's the reason that so many um, you know fundamental investors have been crushed, uh, you know in in bear markets in the past is that they they don't pay attention to momentum and 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 price trends and these types of things. And so um, one you know one of the most potent technical methods I've seen uh, was was. Uh, in part designed to look for demarc exhaustion signals lining up across multiple time frames. Um, you seem to be doing something similar with momentum signals where you use multiple time frames when they kind of uh, you know line up in concert, that gives you more confidence in, in a certain view. Can you explain, I guess, the value of this approach? Sure. Well, you know, you can assess a long-term trend of a market. Let's say we do it usually by using three-year average, 36-month average, and we measure price in its relationship. In other words, oscillating versus that average. We get a momentum chart called annual momentum. Uh, we also drop down to three-quarter average, which is, you know, lesser but still fairly long-term. Any market in a given trend, let's say a long-term uptrend that lasts three or four years, is going to have inhales and exhales. So you're going to have intermediate downtrends within an uptrend. And the difference is knowing that it is perhaps or probably only an intermediate trend. So not every drop in a bull market is the beginning of a bear market. A lot of gold investors have yet to learn that. Uh, over the last, you know, since the lows in 2015 and the secondary low in 2018, there's been a lot of upside in gold, basically doubled from the 2015 low to the high last year. But within that process, there were many drops involving a couple hundred bucks here and there, which no doubt every time it occurred, most people thought, oh my gosh, it's over, you know. Uh, and you have to assess that, okay, yes, it's turning down on this particular time scale, let's say a monthly momentum or a weekly, but it's not turning the annual momentum down. So you put it into context. You say, okay, the big trend is still up. What we're seeing now is breakage of things that are of intermediate quality. It might only last for several months or maybe even weeks. And so it helps you assess what is the nature of this inhale-exhale process. Is it really something to be concerned about or is it just a dip in the uptrend? Yeah, I mean, and that just reminds me so much too of 
um, you know, marrying your your time frame, you know, on the charts with your time frame as an investor. I see so many times, you know, uh, somebody considers themselves themselves a long term investor, but they're looking at daily or hourly charts. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah. it's, what's the point it's, of that? It's the worst thing you can do. No. Yeah. Now sometimes they do coincide. I mean, you might have a situation where the annual. Um, is ripe for downturn because it's got a structure below it and you're not far from it. If you drop 5% in a given market, you could blow a major annual structure. And you look over at the quarterly structure, which is less long-term, and it has a structure too. And sometimes you get an echo effect where the two of the major structures say, yeah, we're both ready to go, in which case it, it pounds the table even more that, yeah, this downturn is uh, you know two different trigger levels and they're not very far apart. So you pay even more attention to the validity of the upturn or the downturn. Right, right. Um, well, maybe you can give me some examples. Are there some, you know, especially memorable momentum signals that you've seen over the course of your career that you could, you know, share um, you know, that are maybe exemplify the process? The uh, In archival research, we've gone all the way back to the early 1900s, of course, and studied the Dow back then. And the 1929 crash, which was primarily triggered by quarterly momentum, not annual, annual momentum broke later, uh, was a clear, very clear quarterly momentum oscillator floor that you could not see on the price chart. Price chart had ascending lows, you know, almost upwardly curving. Uh, but momentum had a floor. It was like two, three years wide where it used the uh, three-quarter average itself generally as support, support, support. Uh, and obviously, it's not going to hold it forever. Well, in 1987, I was a futures broker. This is prior to we, the founding of MSA. I caught the crash in 87. Well, I, the quarterly momentum chart was an overlay of the Dow chart in 1929. You couldn't tell the difference, except the prices were different, but the oscillator looked the same. And so sure enough, when it broke, it had the same dimensionality of drop. It was like in a matter of weeks, a few weeks in 87, you dropped 30 35%, which is what we call a crash. Um, Last March, actually last February, the S&P and most major indices were set up for a quarterly momentum and even monthly momentum downturn, almost coincident with each other. And so when it occurred, we said, uh, it's going to occur, and this is going to be crash-like. Uh, in other words, it's not going to go down 20% and take two months. It's going to go down 30 35% and take weeks. And it did. Uh, it was of that nature. You could look at the structure and see when this guy breaks, there's nothing underneath it but a void. And so it's going to get its job done quickly, and it did. Uh, now, right now, we're fairly ripe in the U.S. stock market for another downturn based on a lot of factors, monthly, quarterly, weekly, and so forth. Uh, and on the NASDAQ, it's got an annual structure below it, not too far, about 7% below the current market. So we can see that there's a potential for another downturn coming soon, probably. I, we suspect this quarter, uh, probably early in the quarter that will become evident to the price guys, maybe, you know, 10, 20% off the high, but it's evident to us basically where the market's fooling around right now. We don't think this is going to be a crash event though. And the reason is that the structures are somewhat diverse, meaning they're not all timed together like last March was, where you could look at a quarterly, you could look at a monthly momentum chart, and they all were sort of in sync with each other, where if one broke, the other, other ones broke as well. And so it was like a vacuum effect. We see staggered levels of support below where you're likely to go from point of breakage up to another 10% below maybe, then get a little bounce, and then it's a staircase effect. So we don't think you're about to see a downturn 
in the U.S. stock market, which most people are not anticipating, by the way, um, that's going to be that type of event. Meaning if we go down now, it's going to be like most bear market tops. The only time we started a bear market in U.S. stocks with a crash was in 29. And even that crash was followed by a 50% rally back to the high. And then you went down slowly and arduously for two years. Devastating decline, but slow. Go look at the 2000 top. Just look at a price chart. Dot-com top. Go look at the 2007 top through 2009. There wasn't a crash. Didn't begin that way. There's maybe 10, 15% drop, then a multi-month rally, et cetera, et cetera. So it was the kind of drop that psychologically continued to refuel the bulls. You know, it's, oh, it's a buying opportunity, you know, because it turned back up again. But then they learn after a while, after maybe the third drop to a yet a new low, that finally this is a zigzag pattern in the down direction. It really is down, you know. But it takes a while. So it's not like last year, and we don't expect that. If we're topping now in the stock market, it's likely to be arduous and confusing, but directional. And we think we may be near a top, which could, of course, affect a lot of other assets. We, and it's a good lead-in because I, I wanted to ask you about um, you. I mean, I know you don't cover it as a, in a specific report, but but you did cover Bitcoin recently, and that seemed to be a good example of momentum breaking before price. And 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 MSA was all over this. What was it specifically in terms of Bitcoin that you saw that uh, had you concerned ahead of its major breakdown in price? I'll I'll try to describe it to you. First off, Bitcoin came to the market in terms of futures trading in late 2017. At that point, it was 20000 And we assessed then, unfortunately, recorded by the Wall Street Journal then, just like we were recently, before the event, that it was going to go to 5000 Because it was clear to us, momentum-wise, when we went back and used cash Bitcoin and then interfaced it with the new futures, that it was a blow-off market with structure below on momentum that would imply a total wipeout. And we were... It went down to 5,000, but also went to 3,600 ultimately. So it was a full wipeout. Uh, and then we based 2018, 19, 20, uh, late, uh, I think it was 2019, it turned back up based on fairly long-term momentum factors. And specifically what we were looking at in terms of measurement was the 40-week average, which is, what's that? Well, it's like a three-quarter average in duration. It's also about like 200 day, 40 weeks, 200 days, right? Okay. And we were measuring weekly bars in the relationship to, in other words, oscillating versus where's that 40-week average? That was the zero line. We plot the momentum action of Bitcoin. And when it got up to its high in uh, March, I believe it was, it was 65,000. We argued in April that when we started back down quietly at first, a weekly close at 59,000 would doom it. Well, that happened the week of April 23rd. And after the momentum structure broke, and it was hyper clear on the momentum chart, not on price, uh, we knew that Bitcoin was in big trouble. We projected it would drop into the 30,000s before it could find any support. Well, after the point of breakage, it rallied for two weeks from the low 50,000s back up to where? 59,000 again, which was our break number. And then it crashed, and we dropped into the 30,000s. We spent four or five weeks there closing in the upper part of the 30,000s, which is where our support, we thought our support would materialize. But we didn't think that support would really constitute anything more than just a holding pattern or maybe a rally. But it wouldn't be a turnaround for the market that would turn it back into a bull. You'd broken too much stuff. It was all the legs and arm blowings were broken. So you can't turn a market that does that 
back into a bull again without rebuilding yourself, so to speak, letting the bones heal. So what we need is we need up and down action in Bitcoin. And we think we're probably near a low, which is going to be below 30,000. We traded below there last week, closed back above it. But we suspect in the next week or two, somewhere down below 30,000, you'll finally make a trading low. But again, it's going to be a trading low because the long-term momentum doesn't have any structure to break out above to turn you back up. It just has a void above it where you could rally into thin air. Uh, the only thing that has structure are shorter-term momentum, like three-week average momentum, which we're focused on now, that if you turn back up, yeah, you're going to break out over something, but it's not of a long-term structural nature. It says, yeah, you're going to get a nice trading rally, but treat it as such. So we advise the Bitcoin people that, no, we're not going back down like we did in 2018 to, you know, 5,000 or three, but you're going to have to do some work before you can rebuild this market back into a real uptrend. And we suspect that'll begin soon from somewhat lower levels. And the process will begin where they're, they're going to be up and down trading situations, uh, building a basing action. I mean, it's interesting to me, um, you know, more, you know, in its implications beyond Bitcoin itself. Um, you recently wrote MSA is beginning to suspect something underway. Something's underway across the boards. Uh, the major stock market averages could possibly be either showing similar breakdowns in momentum to, to that we saw in Bitcoin um, or maybe have already started to break on some of the shorter time frames. Do you think Bitcoin's recent crash then is a warning for the equity markets? I don't know. There's a good correlation. Um, to some extent, it looks like it when you look at the price chart that, you know, they were both going up very strongly, you know, from during 2000, specifically in the latter part of that year. Uh, but I don't know I'd make the correlation. Um, I think Bitcoin's enough independent and, and Ethereum and so forth. And by the way, there are a lot of people question about, well, what about this, this crypto? Basically, you can look at Bitcoin and analyze them all, okay? They'll be different here and there, but the, the major trends are going to be coincident. And uh, ultimately, some of them are going to definitely survive as an alternative non-inflated currency. So they have a virtue. Uh, but it's, as far as the coincidence to the stock market, we don't have a hard hard feeling about that. Okay. Um, in terms of looking at you know these stock market structures, I, when we spoke two years ago, we talked about these massive long term structures that uh, you know the major indexes had formed really since the the bull market began a little over a decade ago. Um, what's fascinating to me is that in the wake of the pandemic all of these momentum structures have broken out to new highs in terms of their long-term momentum. How do you interpret that, you know, that range, that, that major structure that we've seen form over 10 years, like breaking out to a new high uh, over the last year or so? You have to, uh, when you look at momentum, you have to factor in some history. And let's just talk about the NASDAQ 100, which is definitely the leader index and has been for the last couple of years in terms of percentage gain. Now, since February, it's underperformed, and we think it's actually topped in terms of its performance trend versus, let's say, the S&P, which is a negative indication, by the way. That happened in early 2000, about five months before the market actually turned down hard. Uh, but the NASDAQ 100 still is, is the king because of the weighting of certain symbols within it, like Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, and so forth, are so heavy that basically, uh, you know, they constitute like 20% of the S&P, about the five... 
biggest stocks in NASDAQ 100 constitute about 20% of the S&P. They constitute almost 50% of the NASDAQ 100. So you need to watch those big five names, Facebook and, and Google as well. But when we look at NASDAQ 100 on annual momentum, you're right. There were a set of highs all the way back when we came roaring up out of the hole in 2010 and 11. The peak annual momentum readings on NASDAQ 100 were always at 41 to 42% over that rising 36-month average. And then you'd pull back often down toward the 36-month average. And you'd come back up again. There's like five highs in that decade-long period that all reached up to 40, 41, 42% over the zero line or over the 36-month average. So on a momentum chart, you have this ceiling that's so clear, so obvious, you don't see it on the price chart because all the highs are higher. But on momentum, they're all flat. Well, last summer when the uh, NASDAQ 100 went into a blow-off mode, meaning went totally vertical uh, between like July, August, September, and October, just it went off the page in terms of percent acceleration. It had blown through this flat ceiling on annual momentum, this 41, 42% level, got up to like 60 some odd percent over. And since then, you, you, yes, that's a strong statement when it broke through that ceiling. But you also have to realize that that's a very high and overbought momentum level for the NASDAQ 100. It's higher than any of the highs during the bull trend in terms of momentum. So yes, it's strong, but it's also the kind of thing you would say, potentially exhaustive, meaning, yeah, it's strong, but it can't sustain that. It's too much, too much thin air. Since then, we've used that 42% level in pullbacks since uh, late last year. We've used that same level of momentum as support. And you don't have much tolerance next month. Each month, that that 36-month average is rising. It's rising a couple hundred points, say a percent and a half or so in the NASDAQ. So you'd never want to get back down to about 40% over that 36-month average because you're going to abort back below the old ceiling. So like a silly metaphor, the elevator goes through the top of the building and realizes, oops, I'm out of the elevator shaft, and then starts back down. That's, that's basically what NASDAQ has done, and we're just simply waiting on the drop that puts you back below the old ceiling because we are at overbought levels. And yes, momentum has been strong, but you've been paid for it because NASDAQ accelerated in price and, and rewarded those who were long. But we think it's uh, close to topping out now, and it's got to be watched very carefully. It, it reminds me of, um, you know, Tom McClellan uh, has been, you know, tracking the lumber um, contract over the last, you know, several months. And, and it's been fascinating to watch in real time because as it was blowing off, you know, he kept saying, you know, when this thing reverses, the reversal is going to look just like the rise, you know, but in the mirror image of it. Uh, do you think that's fair to say about the momentum structure? Yeah, no, momentum. I happen to glance at lumber. We don't usually cover it that much. It's first off, it's not part of the Bloomberg Commodity Index. It's not not a component, but we were watching it, and it turned up before most commodities. I think for the reasons that we talked about earlier in, the, in our uh, conversation about people fleeing big cities and wanting to build homes. If they can't find a home already in the suburbs, they build one, okay? So there was an inordinate demand for lumber in what was a slumped market at that point, talking back January, February, March of last year, especially March onward, uh, where there was demand for home building, but supply wasn't ample because, it frankly, wasn't demand at that point. So it caught the lumber market off guard, and it exploded well beyond its old norms. 
and it went from you know what might have been old highs at 400 bucks per thousand board feet went to 1700 plus well back it when it was 1700 one week off the high we put out a report say this is probably the top and it, it was a blow-off market so mcclellan was right in that so when you have a blow-off market quite often when it gives it up it gives it up totally and that's what what lumber basically has done. I don't think lumber is going to go back anywhere near its old highs, like let's say 400 bucks. I think it dropped in below 900 or something. So I suspect the low isn't too far away, but you're also not going back to that high. I think lumber had its its glory days, and you're now going to live in, an, in a range that's higher than the old ranges, but that was definitely probably the high for that particular commodity. I would not say that about most commodities. Uh, the recent slump we've seen in grains is corrective in our view. Recent slump in copper is corrective in our view. It's not a top that's going to persist into some collapse. Uh, so, you, you know, when Powell was talking the other day, he wanted to point out the things that were going down in commodities so he right. could boast that, see, it's temporary. Well, he picked the right one, lumber. Uh, but that's not that's not the norm of the commodity complex right now. So him picking that out, he was, it's almost like he was reading our reports or something. Yeah. Uh, that was a good one to pick here, but it's, it's not going to be what goes on in the commodity complex. I want to come, come back to commodities, but before we, we, we get to that, um, you know, I guess specifically I was thinking about this, this recent um, structure in the NASDAQ blowing, you know, uh, making new highs in terms of momentum in your, I guess, experience is that that type of a, you know, going up to that 60% plus above its 36 month moving average. Um, is that the type of thing that, you know, we could say what Tom McClellan said about lumber is that usually when that reverses, the structure looks the same coming down as it did going up. Uh, in the case of lumber, it wasn't quite so long-term momentum. It was uh, more like 40-week average momentum and stuff like that. So it was a briefer situation. Uh, but yeah, it ventilated every momentum chart you had and went off the page, obviously. So you know, it, it made oscillator highs you've never seen in history type of thing. So once it went down, it didn't have anything nearby to support it. Mm -hmm. so you look at the price chart too it's the same story you look right. at the price chart and say well where's support geez it's it's way under a thousand and that's where you went rapidly uh, in the case of nasdaq that's very similar uh, in the sense that you the, age is also a factor here in nasdaq because you know in history of bull trends in stock market in the u.s uh, 10 years is a long time we're now in the 12th year now i know it's been unusual because we've had a factor in play that we haven't had it such consistency over the past century, and that is central bank support. Uh, it's not just now that the central bank's gone crazy, but actually, you know, since 2008 and 2009, uh, the Fed went full throttle, at least by their standards at that point in time, to support the stock market. Uh, Bernanke even wrote a paper in 2003 before he became Fed governor, uh, arguing that the Fed needs to, you know, one of the major underlying things it needs to be in charge of is supporting the stock market because stock market psychologically stimulates what? Consumer spending, which he thought therefore helps the economy as opposed to savings. Well, they achieved that. You know, they supported that market all along and investors went with them. Uh, but remember, the stock market, when it started with that support, had collapsed from 1570 in the S&P down into the 600. So the Fed supported it during the decline didn't help. But then finally it got to a price level that was deemed cheap and therefore less risky by major investors. And so the money flow that the Fed created went into stocks and went into stocks and went into stocks as opposed to other asset categories. 
But now you've been a dozen years up. Experienced asset managers are getting suspicious, and they're particularly suspicious about the money monetary policy. And they know full well that ultimately it's investor preference that drives that Fed money. It's not just the existence of the Fed money. It doesn't always go where the Fed wants it. So these guys are saying, thank you for printing the money. We're going to put it in T-bonds, and we're going to put it in gold, and we're going to put it in commodity-related stocks. And we think that's what's been going on for now a good number of months. And uh, I think it is also evidence in like the S&P or the NASDAQ, where the pace of price rise is very incremental. Uh, in fact, if you look at the NASDAQ 100, which recently made new highs, Friday's close was 3.3% above it's February high. So look at the number of months and look at the gains you've seen since it's February high. It's been snail-like. So we think money is moving uh, despite Fed policy. Well, yeah, and, and you mentioned one of the things, you know, obviously yeah, the monetary framework over the past decade has been, uh, you know, something that's different this time in this bull market. But what's maybe I, I think helps to explain this this uh, blow off and mo- new momentum highs in the NASDAQ, too, is that, um, you know, at the same time that liquidity has been dramatically dropping uh, over the past 10 years, we've seen equity inflows just massively surge uh, over the past year um, and, and over the past, you know, this year especially. Um, but really, investor leverage too has taken off. So you pair, you know, falling liquidity with massively increased leverage in terms of margin debt or call options and all these things. And you, I mean, how do you create a momentum structure like that? I mean, with, you know, let liquidity evaporate and let investors go nuts with leverage. Um, you know, one thing that I've been just from traditional technical analysis I've been paying attention to is in Edwards and McGee, uh, you know, describe the broadening top pattern like we see in the S&P 500 index over the past, really since early 18, late 17. They describe that as a market out of control, which, which is, is to me, uh, is the technical representation of these, a lot of these meme stocks and things that we're, we're seeing. Um, do you think that kind of fits along too with what we've seen in terms of these long-term momentum structures over the past, you know, year or two? Yeah, I think the quality of the buying is, is, is questionable, as you pointed out, that a lot of it's leveraged. A lot of it's like the same mentality that drove Bitcoin for the last, you know, 20, 30,000 bucks on the upside is, is craziness. Uh, you know, the assumption that gee, it's going to keep going just because it feels so damn good. <laughs> you know, and a lot of the people investing in stocks now are, are new, uh, you know, new to the market. And they're, they're gambling. They, they want to use the leverage because they need to use the leverage because it's a source of money for them. It's a fountain of, of, of flow of liquidity when, they make, when they're right. And so far, you know, if your buddy did it and it's working and your other buddy did it and it's working, you're going to join in too. And that kind of crowd behavior is, of course, highly dangerous, and it's indicative of what you might see at the top. Uh, and so I think those attributes you pointed out are, yeah, there's something to notice. Yeah. yeah. I got to ask you about a, uh, a quote in particular from one of your recent reports, um, and just, you know, maybe you can elaborate on this a little bit. You wrote, we sense that the chaos theorists will smile at what unfolds in 2021 and 2022. What might have previously taken years via incremental price change will instead unfold in violent jolts over a matter of quarters. It's a distinct possibility, and MSA is getting more on edge about that sort of predictable chaos, especially when we see momentum charts like what we're seeing today. Um, can you just kind of explain a little bit in more detail kind of what, you, what you're what you sensing? Well, you know, this, the chaos theorists have, have 
nailed many situations and explained why they occurred, at least uh, <clears throat> from their perspective. If most of us are used to incremental trends, you know, meaning that, you know, it goes up at a certain angle or goes down at a certain angle and it generally persists in that angle of incline or decline. You know, I'm talking price now, you know, for example. But there are times when coincidence of events and inverse and coincident behavior of various asset categories comes into play all at once. Uh, now, for example, you know, money flows, if it flows out of stocks, it goes to where? Well, we know now where it goes. It goes into commodity-based stocks because they've done very well and they were very cheap. And it's caused a major jolt in those stocks, even more than in the commodities themselves. Uh, so it's surprised. In other words, you look at a soybean chart or a corn chart, and the upturn looks like, gee, we had a drought. You know, we had a crop disaster. Uh, no, you didn't. Uh, yeah. But the change in trend was like a, a lightning bolt. And it's also true with many other commodities. Well, we also see that building. For instance, look at, look at gold, for example. It's been in a really what you could call a gradual, incremental wave, up-down wave since 2016, 2018, secondary low in the 1160s where, you know, any jolt on the upside really wasn't that dramatic. You know, it went up $100, $200 and backed off, spent some time, et cetera, et cetera. It was, it was more leisurely. It wasn't unusual. Uh, then you look at, at, at other markets as well, like the stock markets. Is, it's now set, we think, for a downturn. But if these markets snap at around the same point, for instance, if the stock market turns down, that's going to cause a huge question mark and an eruption in thought processes about what's going on here. We didn't think that was going to happen. The Fed has our back, right? If all of a sudden they get jolted there, there's going to be more flush money moving from stocks and into other categories, like the safety of T-bonds or T-nodes, and or back into gold. And we think that because the ambush effect of a downturn in the stock market, I don't mean to crash again, I'm talking about where it suddenly stops, goes down, and begins a bear market, will be sufficient to cause a psychological problem and a reassessment of many other markets that are either inversely related or coincident with the stock market to cause those markets to move with more vigor. And so our suspicion is that what silver did, for example, last summer, silver broke through an annual momentum ceiling at a very low level when price moved up through $19.48 July a year ago. Well, if you look at a price chart, it had already been there before. It was no big deal. But on annual momentum, it was a breakout to a triple top. Within three weeks, price of silver doubled. No, excuse me, it went up 50%. Three weeks, up 50%. That's called a non-incremental move, yeah. okay? Uh, gold has not done that yet, even since its 2015 low. It doubled in price, but it took it several years. We think gold is a potential point where if you see f further slippage in the dollar, dollar right now is 91.70 level, dollar index. If it trades down to 90, in our view, it's likely to implode down deep into the 80s. That will shock a lot of people and cause a lot of money movement. And if the stock market simultaneously wobbles and starts to break our long-term momentum structures, gold's going to get that message. And we suspect that if gold moves back up again, and I'll give you a number, 1950, touch 1950 one more time, and that's not the high. The high was 2070 back last summer. You touch 1950 once more. We suspect on the other side of that's going to be something very electric, very dramatic, and very different in tone than what we've seen so far in gold. Well, yeah, and, and it's a, 
fascinating to me that you you know are analyzing these markets in concert with one another because it does seem to me that there is a risk um you know of if the if the stock market were to roll over and then the fed make another dovish dovish shift because they need to you know yeah. try and try and prop up the stock market that would potentially be the catalyst for a dollar breakdown um, and so, yeah, these things are, you know, clearly related from a macro standpoint. But I've been curious to really ask you more about gold because from, from just a fundamental standpoint to me, uh, I'm looking at, you know, the most deeply negative real interest rates that we've seen in 40 years. To me, that is, is probably the strongest case for owning gold that we've seen in a long, long time. And, you know, it seems to me investors are just, you know, are, are not appreciating the potential upside volatility in the gold price that we could see as a result of these deeply negative interest rates. Yeah, I think, uh, well, our view of T-bonds right now is that it is coincident with gold. Uh, in other words, if its price goes up and yields go down, it, it gold moves with it. Uh, actually, we were looking for a low in gold when we got down to the March lows, 1670s. Um, we saw enough upturn during March to assume that the low was in. Well, I think that was our quote. I think the low is in. Uh, and in May, we had enough evidence that it would move back up again. But remember, that was 1670s. Well, in March, what were T-bonds? T-bonds were down at their lows. Now, they didn't turn up convincingly until probably May by our work. But they ceased going down in March, coincident with the gold low. Now, if you go over and look at the S&P, or most indexes at that point, yes, they've continued to gain ground, but it's been incremental, if at all. And so March looks like a point where the inverse relationship between stock market and gold has begun again, meaning gold back up, stocks trying to top, and the bonds turning up, meaning somebody wants to own safe stuff. They're certainly not buying the yields, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, they want to buy safety. Now, there's a point, though where this relationship between T-bonds, upside in price, gold upside in price, is likely to break down. Uh, and I suspect that's coming probably from a high we see this year in T-bonds. Our guesstimate right now in T-bonds are in the high 158s. They've been above 160 on the T-bond futures. This rally could easily take you back up into the low 170s. That's not a new high for the bonds. They were higher than that last summer when they their top weekly closes coincident with gold, by the way, in August. Uh, but there's a point at which we think the T-bond up and the drop in yields will peter out and gold will continue up and T-bonds will roll over. And that could really surprise people because if T-bonds ever got back in sync with the stock market, meaning you had a trend back down in bonds, rise in yields to reflect the inflationary process that's underway, uh, that would leave basically one major alternative to those other asset categories, gold or gold-related and commodity-related. So we think that that relationship that exists now and likely to continue for the next several months at least uh, could very well divorce and go the other way, at uh, which point that would surprise a lot of investors who are parked in where? In the safety of T-bonds. If their stock market goes down and all of a sudden T-bonds go up in price and they feel good, what if the T-bonds top and start back down? That will ambush mentally a lot of ana analysis going on in the markets right now and leave you basically with one alternative.
Yeah, well, one thing that I've been, you know, writing about, I think I wrote a blog post about a few weeks ago, is markets seem to be pricing in the transitory, you know, uh, Fed narrative uh, on inflation. And if it proves to be inflation, you know, a little bit more sustainable than transitory can accurately describe, then I, I think you're absolutely right. Then, then you know, people will, investors will, you know, begin to appreciate that, heck, what, what you know, stocks and bonds are not the place to you know protect myself from uh you know a fed that's so far behind the curve that you know we haven't seen anything like this in a long time and it wouldn't take a ton of money to pour into gold um to see it really take off you know when i look at the relationship of you know the real 30 year treasury yield i'm talking about you know 30 year yield less core inflation and the gold price right now um, you know, we're, we're so deeply negative on the 30 that it implies the gold prices should be up 30, 40, 50% year over year. And it's essentially flat. I mean, it, it points to a ton of potential upside for the gold price. And I guess I'm just curious to know if that's what kind of the momentum structure is showing right now. Is it kind of, does it validate that type of a? Yeah, uh, we think it's been a, a, the gold pullback, which was 20%. But think about it. 20% drop. It took you uh, nine months to achieve. And it was layered, and it was redundant. And when you look at silver, it was a sideways trading range between 22 low. In fact, the 22 low in silver after the high bust uh, last summer occurred within about a month of the high. And you've not been back to 22 cents. You've been living in the upper part of the range on silver. So they've been well supported. But if you think about the stock market and the psychology, look at the bull market and stocks for 12 years, so the S&P, and circle any time you can find a 15, 20, 25% drop. You can find many of them, and yet most of them did not generate extreme fear, whereas in gold, every time you get a 10% drop, it's all over, right? So to some extent, as being bullish on gold, it's a good environment to be in, to have most of your long skeptical, because it means you're not over-enthused. We're not at the point where we have a, an overly-enthused investor crowd. In fact, they're very doubtful. They run every time it, it says boo. Uh, but... You're right. If it, I think the real shock effect is mental, not so much chart-wise. It's when there's a realization that Ray Dalio made very clear when he said, you know, be concerned about the value of your money in it. Okay? If all of a sudden we assume that the Fed might tighten in 2022 like they're talking about, that's based on an assumption that the stock market isn't going to be a problem. Well, what if the stock market becomes a problem and we see the, the Fed basically go back to full throttle uh, in terms of their statements, because they've not come off full throttle, by the way, uh, then that's going to cause a rethinking of all the investment strategies out there that are assuming, one, the Fed's going to tighten sooner or later, two, inflation is temporary. That's a, a false assumption on our, on our view, looking at the long-term technicals of the commodity complex. And three, that the dollar is going to somehow hold together. If, if certain of those things snap, it's going to cause a major uh, upturning of the tablecloth on the table, you know, and a lot of plates are going to break. And so I think that's, it's, it could be a fairly coincident event that that occurs. And I think when that does occur and that realization hits people, that's when gold becomes the, the star of the show. And you're right. It's not that big of a market when you think about it compared mm -hmm. to the global stock market, you know. Yeah, and and you know, I think you know, I, I it was a stretch probably trying to compare the move in lumber to the move in the Nasdaq. 
simply because, and, and you address this, that, you know, lumbers, is, you know, commodities generally are potentially very early in a longer term bull market, obviously financial assets, stock market in particular, it's potentially very late, uh, late cycle. From a fundamental standpoint, commodities, it's, a, it's astounding to me that we've seen such a strong move in commodities over the past year, but they're still so dramatically cheap uh, relative to financial assets like stocks and bonds. And so that's you know critical. And, and you make the point too, in the gold market, uh, in terms of the sentiment cycle, people are still so doubtful that that is another sign that you see early in a, in a bull market, not late. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, you know, when we start seeing the the, the, the pure faith in in the buy the dip crowd in commodities, then we'll know we're late cycle in in, in that market. Yeah, well, Powell's getting what he wants now because he's getting the pullback in most commodities, and so now he's no doubt smiling. You know, every time he meets with a congressman or senator explaining, you know, I told you it'd be temporary. Uh, the, the surprise effect's going to be that uh, the pullback you're getting in most commodities, forget lumber. Again, it's not even part of the Bloomberg Commodity Index. But when you get the, a nice sharp intermediate drop in soybeans, which you're getting, corn, wheat, copper, etc., oil's not dropping. Oil just added to its annual momentum breakout just recently crossing 68 and 71 dollars, which is now 74. So it's, it's a slightly different category. Uh, and that it just broke through some barriers, and therefore it's sort of fresh in that regard. But when you get enough pullback in these, it's going to make all the, uh, the the people who are worried about the tapering sort of assume, well, no, they're not going to taper now because the commodities are pulling back, just like he said they would. But if you also get that stock market headed down, then that notion that they're not going to taper is going to become rock hard. They're not going to taper because they must defend that stock market, even for the folks who aren't in it because uh, – you work at a factory and you've been there for 10, 20 years, you know that when the stock market goes down like it did in 7 in 2008 and nine, you could get laid off. And so even if you're not in the stock market, you look at it because uh, you know if that market goes down, your company stock goes down, uh, you tell your wife, let's cut our spending a bit. you know. And so the Fed is going to have to defend that market. So it's really key right now, I think, for investors in any other category to be focused on the stock market. Because that's the beast if it snaps and begins a bear decline. It's going to change so many perspectives in so many other markets. Yeah, it's it's something that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a shame that, you know, the, the Fed has made it a focus uh, of their own policy. It's almost like, you know, the... Uh, the uh, add it to the dual mandate, prop up the stock market in addition to full employment and, and uh, you know, uh, level uh, stable prices. Um, and so, you know, we have to pay attention for that. They've for created that. the beast. You know, yeah. 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 Um, I, you know, thank you. You've, you've taken so much of your time to help, you know, explain, you know, the ins and outs, a lot of your, your, your research, your process um, for, for people who uh, really are interested in learning more about MSA and, and kind of keeping up with your work, where would you direct them to look? Well, our website is uh, olivermsa.com, uh, M for Momentum Structural and MSA for Momentum Structural Analysis. So olivermsa.com. Request some sample reports. When you go there, you can uh, see some there. Also, we have a, uh, a tab on, on the methodology that basically explains our methodology and so forth. So there's a lot to look at there. But uh, don't hesitate to ask for sample reports and, uh, you know, ponder on it. See if it's the kind of work that might fit with what you, what you want as an investor or an asset manager. Yeah, and, and I'll just, uh, you know, preface it. When I first looked at your work, it was it looked like gibberish to me. I thought this is something so new and different. 
uh, that I really had to take some time with it and, and appreciate what you're doing with it. So, um, yeah, ha- have a little patience. Take a look at it. There's deep value in, in a lot of what uh, MSA puts out there. Um, but it is different. Um, but that, that, I think, is what gives it a lot of the value in the first place. So, Michael, thank you so much for generously sharing so much of your time and knowledge with me today. I'm, I'm really grateful to you. Well, Jesse, enjoy your tour. Yeah, yeah. I'm headed to Wyoming and then uh, Idaho and and on from there. So thanks. Great, thanks, Jesse. Yep. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time. Buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss. <laughs>